The following is a live episode of Inhospitable, recorded at the Wild Goose Festival in July of 2019, and featuring Wesley Spears Newsom and Lauren Eford. If you stay tuned at the end of this episode, you'll hear a special preview of Season 2, which is coming in 2020. This is Inhospitable. So what we're going to do is um, Lauren and I are going to tell an abbreviated version of our church's story and Jill's story um, to you. And then we're going to open it up for questions um, for you all to ask about that and um, the particulars of the story you might find most interesting um, and want to talk about. Um, there's a whole podcast mini series that's out now um, where you can hear the whole story in um, a lot of detail. Um, but we wanted to provide something that was live and unique for Wild Goose, um, so that's why we're here doing this. I'm Wesley Spears Newsom, an associate pastor at Greenwood Forest Baptist Church in Cary, North Carolina, and the writer for Inhospitable. I'm Lauren Eford, senior pastor at Greenwood Forest. As many of you know, one of the first things that Donald Trump did when he became president was sign a lot of executive orders, um, and some of those were on the subject of immigration. The first one of those was Executive Order 13767, which was called Border Security and Immigration Enforcement Improvements. In the media covered this executive order largely because it talked about building the prototypes for the wall in the American Southwest, and that was what was highlighted in it. Um, but most of the order actually had to do with changes to immigration enforcement. Executive Order 13767 actually made it so that anyone who had temporary status to avoid, avoid deportation was now on the list for deportation as soon as that status expired. But there wasn't nearly as much coverage of that procedural change, particularly because of the second executive order Trump signed. Executive Order 13768 was covered in the media as an order about sanctuary cities, but it also prioritized the removal of all immigrants who had outstanding orders for deportation deportation regardless of criminal history. As a predominantly white church in a suburb in North Carolina, we were viewing this largely as the media presented it. So we saw what was in the news. We saw the wall and sanctuary cities. And for months after, some people in our church participated in things like the airport protests against the travel ban and other actions um, protesting the Trump administration. We were tuned in for efforts to dramatically change our healthcare system that year as well. And we all watched on the news as they took their first pass at tax reform. Um, but it wasn't long before the things that didn't make the news about orders 13767 and 13768 actually hit our church in a very practical way. One of our members, Jill Bakindu, came to us because ICE was coming for him. Jill had joined our church years ago when he walked into the building because he lived nearby. 
the pastor at the time connected him with one of our Sunday school classes, and they started giving Jill a ride to church every week. Jill became a faithful attender of our church for over a decade and one of the most consistent members of his class and of our worship service. Every week, he sat in the same spot in the sanctuary, hanging on to every word that I said. Jill was in the United States under what was called an order of supervision. This is a temporary status given to someone who doesn't have permanent status through asylum or permanent residency. But the government doesn't want these people necessarily deported, so they give them um, what's called an order of supervision. So the United States gave Jill this status because he'd come here seeking asylum for fear of political persecution because while he was a government worker in the Republic of Congo, Jill had witnessed state-sponsored violence and he'd fled using an educational visa. But unfortunately, as often happens for lots of immigrants with no significant legal connections, Jill was not believed. They said he didn't have enough evidence and he was not granted asylum back in 2004. Nevertheless, because of a constellation of medical conditions ranging from diabetes to HIV, the government allowed Jill to stay in the United States to receive treatment. His order of supervision allowed him to live and work in the United States as if he were a permanent resident. He kept up his employment for years and continuously worked to gain skills and knowledge in the local education system in Raleigh. He never committed a crime. He didn't even enter the United States illegally, and he kept his records spotless his entire time in the United States. Life was hard and his resources were scarce, but life was also good. Jill made friends and he was active in his church and he did everything a model immigrant would need to do. But with a few strokes of a pen, none of that mattered anymore. Jill's order of supervision had been renewed without incident for over a decade. He'd gone in every year to renew the same status and never had an issue. But in 2017, that's when everything started to change. Trump's executive orders um, directed ICE to stop renewing these temporary statuses. We saw kind of in the news the statuses to people from Central America recovering from disasters were being gradually revoked. The same thing happened with orders of supervision, like Jill's. So in September 2017, Jill got a letter saying that his status would not be renewed as usual. He was on the list for deportation. Jill and his Sunday school teacher came to us immediately and we hired Jill a lawyer. We applied for all the things that he was eligible to apply for, paid all of the relevant fees, and showed up to all the requisite appointments. It was 2017 and we were naive and innocent and we knew things could get bad, but we didn't know how. Jill had obeyed all of the laws throughout his life here, and he wasn't ready to start making an exception when January 2018 rolled around, when ICE called him in for his third or fourth appointment in just as many months. I had accompanied Jill to all of his prior appointments, and this one wasn't going to be any different. At the last appointment in 2017, Jill's deportation officer, Chuck Kelly, said that deportation wasn't a thing that we needed to worry about. Jill wasn't a high priority. All he had to do was file his paperwork, record his biometrics, and he'd be back in the clear. And that turned out to be a lie. 
Jill went back with the officer in the, into the office suite at the Charlotte field office where he had been many times before. Wes had been back there too in the past, but this time they wouldn't let Wes accompany Jill. The clock kept on ticking. Five minutes turned into 10 and 10 into 15 and so on. And that's when Wes knew something was wrong. I didn't know what to do immediately because I'm just sitting in this bland office. <laughs> um, the only decorations are a giant emblem for the Department of Homeland Security. And I just started praying all the prayers that I knew uh, that I had in my head. This was just supposed to be a routine appointment. They had made us promises the last time that we were there. I'd sat in the back in that office suite, and the officer had told me, this is not something you need to worry about. Just fill out the paperwork. My phone just started ringing when it was quiet in the office. And you're not supposed to open your phone in the ICE office, but I, I did because I saw it was Jill. And he was panicked on the other line of the phone, breathless and scared. He said they were taking him, that they had him in handcuffs, and that they were going to deport him. Um, I told him I would call his lawyer immediately, and the line just clicked off, as I assume they found him with his cell phone, and he was never able to use that cell phone again. As Joel recounted to us, the ICE agents told him that they were detaining him, not taking his biometrics, and that he was going to be deported. The head of the Charlotte I ICE office, David Cundy, came out and told Wes the same thing and verified his story. Jill would go first to York County Detention Center in South Carolina, not far from Charlotte, and then he would go to Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia. What David Cundy didn't say is that Stewart is one of the most infamous detention centers in the country. So while we held press conferences and vigils at our church and outside the Charlotte ICE office where Gilles was detained, he was on a bus going down to Stewart Detention Center, which a reporter for Vice once called, under the Obama administration, the black hole of our immigration system. Stewart Detention Center, like many immigration detention centers, is a private prison. For maximum profit, Stewart is kept above capacity constantly. Stewart has been the subject of internal reports within the Department of Homeland Security that detail significant failures to treat detainees with even basic human dignity. These reports, as far as we know, have been ignored. Jill was hospitalized three times while at Stewart, coming close to death. At first, Jill was supposed to be detained in South Carolina only briefly before heading to Stewart because of his medical conditions. And instead, he was kept in South Carolina until his conditions wound up hospitalizing him immediately upon his arrival at Stewart. Despite having Jill's doctor call ahead and inform Stewart about Jill's medical needs, once Jill returned to the detention center, he still didn't have any of his medications available to him. It took weeks in the United States of America to get Jill some pills. Instead, he eventually wound up in the Grady Hospital in Atlanta before being transferred yet again to another facility that might be able to take care of him. He incurred thousands of dollars in medical expenses while in ICE custody that remain unpaid to this day. 
While Gilles was in detention, those of us in his church worked tirelessly to try and get him out, doing whatever we could. We turned our church conference room, where we have our normal staff meetings about bulletins and worship services, into a war room for this entire operation. We stayed up late in church members' houses, strategizing. We arranged protests, vigils, press conferences. We called members of the media, government officials, anyone that we could get on the phone. We worked with Faith in Public Life. We worked with the New Sanctuary Movement um, to stage a vigil in broad daylight in front of the Charlotte ICE office. We sang freedom songs. We prayed and shouted laments at the officials inside who had detained our brother. And it got broadcast all over North Carolina, getting us some of the spotlight that we needed. Eventually, we got to the table with Jill and our representative in the House, David Price, a Democrat. Because the Democrats did not hold the House yet, he could not do much. But we were shocked at how much the Department of Homeland Security rebuffed any accountability or even communication with Price. Kirsten Nielsen, the then Secretary of Homeland Security, refused even to take Price's phone calls. Price brought up Jill's case and hearings in the House, but received no answer from ICE officials. The regional ICE official over the Southeast, Sean Gallagher, sent form letters back to Representative Price with details not even pertaining to Jill's case. We also worked with Republican Senator Tom Tillis, who was at the time trying to appear moderate on immigration issues because he faces a tough re-election fight in 2020. Tillis's officials came to our church to meet with us and had a little more headway with ICE. Immigration officials directed them to some obscure forms and paperwork that might help. We took whatever opportunity we could get, but all the applications were rejected, even the specific ones that the Department of Homeland Security asked us to fill out. This theme was recurring in Jill's detention. We would find out later that his request for a stay of removal, the very first form um, that we had to turn in the day he was detained, it was actually denied before he even submitted it um, on the day that he was detained. There was no intention of listening or entertaining his health and safety concerns. Deportation was the only outcome. In February of 2018, ICE realized that they could not take adequate care of Jill, and they sent him to the Atlanta City Detention Center. ACDC, as it's called locally, is not an immigration facility. And until relatively recently, ACDC is one of many public municipal and county facilities that agree to house ICE de detainees. Conditions dramatically improved for Jill's health at ACDC, likely because it was not a private prison. His health was no longer in jeopardy, but we knew that he could be deported at any time. Our pastoral staff made multiple trips to Atlanta to see Jill at ACDC, turn in paperwork on his behalf at the regional immigration court, and to hold a vigil outside the prison. Church leaders from our denomination showed up, and CNN even did a write-up on Jill's story as a result, but the odds seemed insurmountable. When we would go and visit Jill, we would sit with a pane of glass in between us and talk on rudimentary phones. And the last time we saw him, we all put our hands against each other's on the glass and prayed. 
on February the 23rd, 2018, after 45 days of fighting, Jill Bikindu was deported in the early hours of the morning. After coming into the United States legally, after applying for asylum legally, after living and working in the United States legally, Jill was detained and deported despite having committed no crimes. After near lethal stays in private and public prisons, ICE officials arrived and put him on a plane. We'd hoped there was some last minute Hail Mary that Gilles would maybe change planes in Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris and he might be able to seek asylum there. But instead, ICE thought of that too. They routed him through Ethiopia, a country with whom they have a cooperation agreement. And in the midst of political chaos happening in Ethiopia that weekend, the government did let Gilles spend a night there as he prepared to return to his home country. But even staying in Ethiopia was not an option. The next day, Jill was back in the Republic of Congo where he'd fled all those years ago with only the clothes on his back in less than 30 days of the medication he needed to survive. Since that day, Jill hasn't been anywhere but Brazzaville, the capital city of the Republic of Congo. His movements have been restricted, his access to quality medication cut off, his options for work non-existent, and his connection to his community all but severed. We were able to get Jill the supply of medication he had in his apartment in Raleigh before he was deported. Had to be a little creative about that, but it also only lasted about four months. After that, he had to transition to the far inferior regimen available in the Congo that didn't take into account all of his medical conditions. The church continues to fund Jill's housing and medical expenses to get him what he needs, but there's little hope for a change in that situation. And even now, we've had an interruption in getting him his money for this month, and we don't know why. We've tried to get him to another country besides the United States or the Republic of Congo, but we've had little success. We didn't want to finish recounting this story without you hearing some of Jill's words about what life is like now. So what have you uh, what have you been up to in Brazzaville since you've been back there? What what's life like? Uh, you know, I'm not working. I can't work. There's no work for me. And um, I mean, uh, that's what I, I, I said to uh, uh, to Pastor Erford. Uh, yeah. West. Thanks to the church, you know, the support uh, they're giving me. I mean, the night would have been a very, very hard, catastrophic, I would say. Can you imagine that? Right now, for example, I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting those emails, you know, you know, those jobs. From the United States, you know, asking me to go back to, you know, asking me to go to work, you know, because they don't know that I was, they don't know that I was deported. So, my email is full of uh, job offers, for example. So, mm. yeah, I'm praying, uh, let's pray, hopefully, uh, I will uh, get out of here. 
you know? So, yeah. Uh, to all the folks, the I will. Thinking of them a lot, and uh, I know that, uh, yeah, I know that uh, they ha they have me in, uh, in their prayer. Yeah, spiritually, we are together, right? So that's our that's our story, and that's Joe's story. It's the story of our church. Um, you can hear it in a lot more detail in the full podcast series, but that's a summary. And I like to point out to everyone, for every story like Jill's that gets told, there are hundreds, if not thousands, that don't get told. People are deported every day. People die as a result of these policies every day. Jill's life and the life of our community and the lives of so many others are overturned every single day. And all that was done with the stroke of a pen by an executive order carried out by men and women who claim they're just doing their job. We have a lot more details about that story than what we've just shared now, and more than are even shared in the whole podcast series, which you can find in any of your apps or at inhospitableusa.org. So we wanted to open the floor for questions. Inhospitable is about both Jill's story and the story of immigration policy in the United States, so most things are fair game. What questions and reactions do you have? There's a microphone up here. Um, you can come grab, say your questions, so we get it on the recording. I have one. We work in am on I, that. Am I on? All right. Um, I have one for you. Thank you for sharing this tragic story. I know it's hard for all of us to listen to and for you to discuss. Um, I'm a little confused about what happened when he actually reached the Congo. You, you, it, it sounds like he's in being detained there also when he talks about no work available or is he being rebuffed? Is there no work available in the economy, or is someone overseeing him while he's there? And why can't he earn money? And what's his situation now, if you could elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. So the Republic of Congo has a much lower retirement age than the United States does because there aren't a lot of jobs. Um, so they prioritize people who are younger to be able to work. Um, so Jill has passed the retirement age in the Republic of Congo and that you're not like outlawed from working if you're past the retirement age. Um, but unemployment is already astronomically high in the Republic of Congo, even if you're at prime employment age there. So there's not anywhere he's been able to find to get a job. Um, he was describing just this morning to Lauren that there's some kind of currency crisis happening right now that we don't fully understand. He doesn't understand that's new. Um, that's also getting in the way. So he lives as well as he can. Um, we send him money every month that's written into our church's budget um, and pay for things as he has need. But um, there's nothing... There's nothing much to do there. And as, as he said in the clip, like, 
it's extra awful because he keeps getting emails with job offers in the United States um, because he was like a very um, he was a really good employee where he worked here he was a uh, um, his boss loved him, like we talked to his boss um, while he was in this process, and um, he always did a great job wherever he was working, and, and yeah, he just doesn't have those opportunities in the Congo. Thank you again for sharing. Um, I'm curious if you could speak a little to, um, so, so you have, uh, you're walking alongside a congregation that's also experiencing this perhaps making sense of it. It's a congregation in North Carolina. Don't want to make assumptions, but imagining perhaps a spectrum of uh, both political, social, theological beliefs about where to reside in the midst of this. And so I'm wondering, are you looking kind of back at your congregation now and seeing a, a kind of a cohort of resistors who had no idea that they were going to become that? <laughs> um, are they sort of, is it a little bit back to life as usual? And is there, I, I'm, you know, like uh, kind of theological or social denial that this has happened? Is there like a, wow, this happened and now we're changed forever? Um, where, where would you say kind of people are at this point in response to this? I think Jill's used the word cataclysmic, but this cataclysmic theological moment for them as a community. What are they saying now? I would certainly say it was a wow, we'll never be the same, right? Um, we were. We had a chair of deacons at the time who we did not know but arose to be a Trump supporter in the middle of the whole situation. Um, and certainly a congregation that is uh, made up of people from a wide variety of political opinions and uh, certainly uh, theological grounding, right? Um, and I, w I wouldn't necessarily uh, think that our church would have been at a moment where uh, we would have been um, rallying and advocating um, in general at that point. Um, but there, there is something uh, for people of uh, knowing a person, a brother in Christ, sitting in a pew beside you, um, and it not being some made-up story or uh, caricature of a person on the news. Um, now, well, we know Jill. Uh, we know he goes to work every day. We know he hasn't committed a crime. Um, we know he's sitting in our pews. And uh, I don't think anyone, you know, fully knew what they were getting themselves into. Um, and they certainly learned along the way. And I even, I would say, pulled us along as the pastoral staff, right? Um, because you don't know what's going to happen. And in the middle of this process, we were um, trying to educate folks. Like, okay, like let's back up a second. We have this member. We're afraid he's going to need sanctuary. Let's do some education about the sanctuary movement. Let's uh, talk about sanctuary as a hypothetical possibility. Um, let's uh, do some theological work and do some grounding and why it matters that we care for the stranger and the immigrants. And we were doing that. And then... Uh, one day we were sitting in the fellowship hall in a large forum and Wes was interviewing Jill just to try to get everyone in the 
uh, congregation familiar with Jill's story. And you can imagine that was vulnerable for Jill, right? He had to decide, like, am I going to go before this entire group of people and, like, tell my entire story? Like, hey, I know my Sunday school class, but, like, what does it mean to, like, tell the entire church all the details of my life? And is that safe? And um, But he said, I will do whatever it takes to keep myself here. You can say whatever you want to whoever you want. You know, here's what to do. So we were doing that as a congregation, and um, uh, our chair of deacons, who I mentioned earlier, happened to be out of town. And uh, one of our church members, uh, who uh, had not been a longtime church member, uh, was like, just raised his hand, and he was like, what are we going to do about this today? Um, and we were like, uh, well, we, we weren't trying to do anything about it. We were just trying to tell you the story. Um, and he said, well, that's great. But, like, Wes is getting ready to take him to an ICE appointment next week. And, like, what do you mean you don't want to do anything? Like, we need to vote right now. And, you know, like, I've been the senior pastor of the church for a year, and I'm stammering. Oh, uh, well, that's against the bylaws. Just on the record, Lauren said this was against the bylaws. <laughs> um, and then someone was like, let's raise uh, – we can change the bylaws right now. We have enough people here. There's a quorum. And I was like – Okay, um, so deacons, current deacons, former deacons, you know, all kind of came to the side and uh, decided that they were going to write a motion that we were going to bring before the congregation in the next hour um, after worship. And they really took the lead, I'd say, and like propelled us um, to saying, no, we're going to do this. And I think it has absolutely changed people's minds. I think as, you know, white privileged people, you can ignore things that are happening until they're right in your face. And I think that people are paying attention in a way that they wouldn't have been paying attention before. Um, and yeah, we've lost some people along the way. Um, I certainly think that was inevitable. Um, but I think it has solidified uh, the congregational like identity and um, and really has brought in newness of life and purpose in a way that we didn't have it before. I remember having a conversation with one of our more conservative church members while we were in the middle of this. And um, I wanted to make sure he came to this presentation I was doing like a couple months before all of this kind of came to a head on the Bible and immigration and like the church's response to sanctuary and things like that. And um, I, he came and he listened to that and he came when Jill told his story and I went and found him after Jill told his story and all this stuff that Lauren was describing was happening and I, I said, how are you doing? Where are you? And he goes, we have to do this. Like there's not another option. And I'm like, that didn't last forever. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't a thing that changed the world and now we're all suddenly nonpartisan people. And, um, but, but it did change in that moment. Um, and I was, I continue to try and hold that moment as proof that like we can get past some of this sometimes um, and it doesn't always work, but sometimes it does. Where did you find help along the way, and maybe where was it in surprising places or um, or places that you thought you might find help that weren't all that helpful? How did you, like, you know, when you create the war room, I'm sure, like, step one is, I don't know. So how do you get going and finding the partners and support that you needed? First of all, we had a group of... Uh, 
congregation members who were uh, meeting with us weekly. Um, you know, different people from different backgrounds, like, you know, a lawyer, a lobbyist, a psychology professor, a divinity school professor, a bunch of different folks who would meet together weekly and say, have you thought about this and what about this and I know so-and-so, right? I mean, that's how we got into, you know, certainly got into Tom Tillis's office through a friend of a friend, right? Um, so I think pulling in some folks in our congregation who would really help us with that um, and the weekly like the weekly meetings uh, that we had and sort of the division of labor right um, and allowing ourselves to give up some things to other people to work on right because um, one of the things that we did was you know prepare for their you know him getting deported right what was the practical part of that I mean as far as like partners outside of our congregation I mean we certainly relied upon um, our denominational connections to the Alliance of Baptists we uh, were approached by Faith and Public Life and they were incredibly helpful in organizing and sending emails and getting people to show up for protest and telling us who to call um, and helping us in that way um, you might want to add there uh, we got we got to know a few reporters. Um, yeah. I was part of it. Um, reporters that we could call back. Um, there were some that, like, months and months later, when something similar was happening to another church, I was able to talk to that reporter again and tell her where, like, all this stuff was happening and all that, and that was helpful. Um, there were also all sorts of churches that were praying for us. Um, there was there was a church in New York of like thirty people who had Jill's picture on their altar and were praying for him. And we have no idea how they found out um, about any of what was going on, but they they mailed us that that picture and said they were praying for us. Um, some of the churches in the one of the partner churches I work with as a community minister on a regular basis um, was sending us food while we were um, doing all this because uh, we were we were not all in the best health um, for those 45 days that we were we were fighting this. Um, so it was it was definitely it was an ad hoc kind of network of support because. Like, it's not that this hadn't happened before, but there, we were in 2017, like, it had happened, but, like, a bunch of people hadn't started talking about it yet. Um, like, all the immigration lawyers we knew said you should still show up for your ICE appointments. None of them now would tell you to go to your ICE appointment if you were undocumented, because they know what would happen. When um, I think the context that we... The contacts that we had been making in the process were uh, people who were holding folks in sanctuary, right? So, like, all of our people were holding folks, and they were like, oh, wait, well, we didn't anticipate this happening, so I'm not sure what to do to help you. We already got our person in sanctuary, and we don't know what to do for you now, right? Um, <coughs> I know a number of, or indirectly at least a number of, whistleblow federal whistleblowers who work for ICE, work for Customs Border Patrol, work for Department of Homeland Security. The church throws them under the bus. They bystand. They'll say, God bless you. We cannot get engaged. Um, and I'm a whistleblower, and I've experienced that for 25 years, even here. So my question is, what would you say to, to an ICE employee who came to you and said, you know, I'm seeing so-and-so rape so-and-so so she can see her kid. I want to report him up the chain. If I do that, I'm going to get transferred from here to New Hampshire. I've got a, you know, a family, et cetera, et cetera. That's part of the context. Yeah. 
Yeah, like ab absolutely. I think that's what people should be doing. Um, anybody who works within the Department of Homeland Security should be speaking up, and churches should support them in doing that. Um, you can't just expect people to blow the whistle on what's going on and then just hang them out to dry at the end. Um, that if you had somebody in your congregation who worked for DHS and wanted to do that, you would want to work with them and provide a pathway for them to be able to survive the aftermath. Um, because we've already seen that this administration is not kind to people who do that. Um, and yeah, you would absolutely need a network of support for those people as well. And I, I think that like brings up an important point that like we, we can't just give up on the people that are in the system. We need to continually like call the system out. But a lot of the people that like when I would go to appointments at the Charlotte ICE office, lots of the people that are employed within that building, not the highest ranking people, but a lot of the rank and file people were people of color and people who were legal immigrants, who the place they were able to find work was with the federal government. And like this is a system that's built to exploit people at all levels of the of the process and it, there's some nuance that needs to be taken into account of that and we need to hold that in both hands like we need to call this to account we also need to to equip people to be able to call it to account from within thank you for sharing um I was wondering, you mentioned that you have been looking at um, ways of perhaps getting him asylum in other countries, and I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more on what that process has been, um, and also what your um, commitment is as a church to kind of continuing to support him from abroad. Um, yeah, and just kind of your commitment to other detainees. We continue to be, as far as the second part of your question with um, other asylum seekers and other people in detention, um, we continue to be connected to the Sanctuary Coalition in North Carolina. Um, I make those meetings as often as I can, which if you're a minister, you know you can never make meetings as often as you would like. Um, but I try to go to those, especially when they're close to me, um, and show up for other people. Um, Citywell United Methodist Church in Durham, North Carolina, um, experienced an almost identical um, situation to us, and uh, except they were there as a church when it happened, um, because the appointment was at a USCIS office um, near Durham, as opposed to being um, all the way across the state, and uh, they put out the call, and I showed up. Um, and watched them as they surrounded an ICE vehicle trying to stop it from moving and 26 members of their church got arrested um, for obstructing the, the ICE vehicle that was taking their church member away to deport him. Um, so showing up, I think, is the biggest thing, showing up when people ask. Um, after Jill was deported, we showed up for the um, coalition of people who were rallying against the zero tolerance policy when that was first revealed that we had kids in cages over a year ago. Um, and yeah, you can talk a little bit about how you've talked about it in the pulpit. All right. <laughs> I mean, I think... Uh, 
we were talking earlier about being a church in North Carolina, right? And um, I certainly have other colleagues in uh, our town who um, talk to me about how they don't want to read out of uh, like an Old Testament passage that talks about strangers because their congregation gets upset with them. Um, and so, I mean, I think even, you know, sometimes I forget, but like even the act of uh, speaking about this again and again and uh, preaching about it and making the connections for people um, is still really important, right? Because a lot of people haven't received the theological grounding of why, you know, God's radical welcome includes and calls us to fight for uh, people, right? Um, and I think, you know, even that act and st still, you know, even after all this, uh, we still have people who are uncomfortable or who, you know, want to say like, well, can you just talk about it? Not so much, um, you know, but that's where, you know, to continue to speak up. And absolutely, you know, I think one of the growing edges that we have and the constant question that I have is that, you know, as well connected as we are uh, with all of our, you know, social media devices, like we are still not organized in a way that has caused anybody to, to change this, right? And like, I sometimes feel like we're duplicating efforts or we haven't been creative enough to figure out where to like, uh, really stop the federal government somewhere where it hurts enough for them to have some other alternative like motivation to do something about it, right? Because that's where we have to go. Um, and I don't think you know we say like I don't I don't know who the I'm not I don't know that we're the leaders, but we're willing to follow <laughs> uh, when we figure this out, right? What does that mean? And we're certainly committed to that. And there are lots of people in North Carolina um, who are involved in that conversation, and um, you know, lots of people being deported in lots of congregations. There are in lots of communities across the United States um, alert systems for when ICE is acting in your community. Um, they're different in every community. Um, they kind of have to be uh, to be able to work. Um, and um, paying attention to those is important um, because that's how you know when you need to show up. And uh, to, to reemphasize that that notion that we need to organize, I, I think is just key because especially as progressive churches, we have not been organized. Um, the our whole kind of side of religious life has been very kind of networked, um, but not organized. And those are two very fundamentally different things. Like it's one, it's one thing for us to have each other's business card, but it's another for in our communities for all of our churches to have deep relationships. So when something happens, we can call on each other and that we can show up for one another. Um, in doing that all, that's something you have to do all year round. When I was going through community organizing training with the Industrial Areas Foundation, one of the things that they make us read is about the SNCC organizers in Mississippi in the years leading up to Freedom Summer. And it's just story after story of getting doors slammed in your face and getting mistrusted until you're there long enough that people trust you and they're willing to show up for you and with you. And I don't think like a lot of us have really done that work. Um, that we, we're spending our time doing so many other things that we're not, we're not organized as communities. Um, and we don't have power as communities, and we need to pursue that. Because um, otherwise, we're never going to have a seat at the table when decisions get made that impact the families of our churches.
next season, we'll be unearthing stories from U.S. history that help to explain how we came to be so inhospitable to people such as Jill. As we researched for season one, we realized that there is so much history that Americans aren't taught with regard to immigration, and we cannot possibly understand our present circumstances without understanding how we got here. First on the docket for season two, did you know that in the first drafts of the Constitution, the requirement that the president be a natural-born citizen wasn't there? The anti-immigrant sentiments of many of the founding fathers, including revered men such as George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, helped to explain how the natural-born citizen clause made it into the final version of the Constitution. That story, and many more, are coming your way in 2020 on Season 2 of Inhospitable.